0: This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Does that give you enough legroom, Michelle? Yeah, yeah,
2: that's fine. Sure, completely
1: fine. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My name is Stephen Gale. I'm delighted to welcome you this afternoon to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, It's my great pleasure and privilege to be sharing the platform with Michelle Roberts and. Helen Simpson this afternoon. Um, each have produced a new volume of short stories from which they're going to read, and uh, which we'll also discuss uh, a little during the time we have. Um, we'll be sure to leave some time for questions from the floor, and afterwards uh, our guests will be signing copies of their books, uh, which will be over in the main, uh, the main book tent uh, on the right as we leave this venue. Um, but first of all, if you don't mind, I'll introduce our guests. Um, on my far left, uh, Helen Simpson has received the Hawthornden Prize and the E.M. Forster Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, she's produced four previous volumes of short stories uh, entitled Four Legs in the Bed, Dear George, Hey, Yeah, Right, Get a Life, and Constitutional, and now In-Flight Entertainment, uh, from which she's going to read to us this afternoon. Uh, on my near left, Michelle Roberts has written some 12 novels, including The Mistress Class, Daughters of the House and Flesh and Blood, as well as volumes of poetry, plays, film scripts, essays, and a wonderful memoir, Paper Houses. Um, She's published several volumes of short stories, the most recent being Mud, which she's going to read from this afternoon. Um, A coin was tossed earlier. Michelle is going to read first, but first of all, would you please join me in welcoming Michelle Roberts and Helen Simpson. Please.
2: Please. Here comes the thunderstorm. I knew there would be one. This collection of short stories, Mud, is subtitled Stories of Sex and Love. In my writing, sex and love are very often connected to food and eating. So this is a story called Vegetarian in France. It wasn't easy being a vegetarian in France. Larry could just about manage in Paris and other large cities, but in rural society, he was done for. On their holidays, he and Nicolette stuck to picnics. At lunchtime, you could turn off down a lane and park near a river or at the entrance to a forest. Get out the folding table and chairs and enjoy your camembert, baguette and tomatoes, with no one looking at you and criticising. Harder in the evening, though, when he wanted both to avoid the mosquitoes and to eat something hot. Almost impossible to find places willing to serve him the right food. Often enough, Nicolette was forced to smuggle their little camping stove and cooking pots into their hotel bedroom and rustle him up some clandestine spaghetti rather than face the incomprehension of the patronne in the restaurant downstairs. French country people, in particular the middle-aged and elderly ones, had no concept of not eating flesh. Animals existed and were raised to be killed and eaten, and that was that. It's not that I want to argue about it, Larry said. I just want something to eat. <laughs> the French are so intolerant of anything different. Oh, darling, Nicolette said, it's just not in their culture, that's all. When they drove south in the summer, Nicolette was sometimes able to persuade Larry to stop for lunch at a routier cafe. The hors d'oeuvre presented no obstacle. You helped yourself from the array of cold dishes on the table. While Nicolette inspected the homemade rabbit pate, the riette and saucisson and soused fillets of mackerel before settling on a plateful of crudité so that she didn't look too greedy, Harry would pick out some olives, gherkins, and hard boiled eggs. He ate eggs as he ate butter, cream and cheese. To hell with rennet being made from animals. And some sliced tomatoes, or maybe some grated celeriac in mayonnaise. With the main course came the real problem. While the routiers, and indeed Nicolette, were served the hot, delicious plat du jour, featuring featuring pork, beef, lamb, chicken or veal, the most that Larry would ever be offered once his eating requirements were explained was an omelette. Even in quite posh restaurants, or perhaps especially in quite posh restaurants, harassed waiters and patrons had little time for Nicolette's super polite requests that her husband be given something described neither on the menu du jour nor on the carte. A blank look and much sighing would, if Larry were lucky, eventually be followed by the offer of an omelette. Larry graded these omelettes on a scale of one to ten. Some came in at eight, plump and creamy and rolling in melted butter with thin slices of mushrooms inside and a sprinkling of finely minced parsley on top. Some came in at naught, those incorporating cubes of bacon. Someone in the kitchen trying to jazz things up or just be kind to the poor benighted Englishman and which then had to be sent back. Sometimes if Larry was very fortunate indeed the waiter would become inspired and suggest a plate of steamed vegetables before or after the omelette. Larry knew he should look grateful Nicolette would smile sympathetically out of solidarity with him she would forswear calves liver and onions sausages and lentils sweetbreads pork simmered with cream and apples and calvados she would compromise and order fish poached salmon or trout nothing with legs and nothing still with its face on with eyes that looked at you the waiters would shake their heads over the pair of them and slap down the carafe of wine and the basket of bread with contempt. Larry liked French wine and the French climate and the French way of life, mainly, but claimed he had no ear for languages. What he actually had was a built-in resistance to learning anything he didn't see the point of. Important things came naturally and spontaneously. Sex, for example. You didn't have to learn that, did you? Nicolette had the gift of the gab, and good luck to her. So it was Nicolette, who, sitting down and shaking out her napkin, would smile sweetly and address the waiters in her best French, very formal and correct, with much deployment of please and thank you, but it was no use. Once the moment of ordering the food arrived, and she had once more to go through the rigmarole of pleading that Larry be given something he could actually eat, she would become flustered and anxious, and begin trying to use the imperfect subjunctive, and then flounder and stammer and start blushing and the waiter would look first baffled then impatient and finally irritated and contemptuous. The patron, that busy goddess circulating the dining room making sure that everything was going smoothly would be summoned and would courteously inquire what was the matter. Nicolette eventually learned never to utter the word vegetarian. Instead she would say timidly I am afraid my husband cannot eat meat or fish. He is unable to Madame La Patronne would assume that some digestive or gastric disorder probably located in that venerable organ, the liver, was at issue and would briskly announce, so why not an omelette or a plate of some steamed vegetables? And continue on her tour of the tables, people's eyes would swivel, they would stare at the mad English. Nicolette would feel their eyes boring scornfully into her back. She would bend her head humbly over her sliver of unadorned trout and eat it as unobtrusively as possible. Matters improved once Larry retired at 65, and he and Nicolette made the big decision to move to France full-time, because now Nicolette could cook Larry's favourite dishes at home. They settled in the Dordogne, buying a cottage with just enough land to create a manageable garden. Nicolette planted vegetables and soft fruit, apples and cherry trees, a vine, all kinds of herbs. Larry sent round-robin emails to all the folks back home. We're living our dream. He enjoyed nothing more than sitting on the bench outside the front door watching the sunset with a glass of beer in his hand, while in the kitchen Nicolette shelled peas and beans for supper. The neighbours up the farm, sorry, in the farm up the road, Monsieur and Madame Bonfoy, invited Larry and Nicolette in for a drink one evening, then pressed them to stay for dinner. Nicolette felt obliged to refuse and to explain why. But what would happen to all the animals if we didn't kill and eat them? explained Monsieur Bonfois. There would be far too many of them, don't you see? Nicolette geared herself up once more to rehearse Larry's pacifism towards dumb beasts, his love of nature, and his respect for the ecological movement. In the light of the havoc caused by intensive farming methods, dubious supermarket practices, BSE, and the outbreak of foot-and-mouth disease, surely that made sense." She swigged her sweet vermouth. She didn't like it much, but that was what her hostess was drinking. Women here, she had learned, were not supposed to ask for pastis or whiskey. Larry just prefers vegetables, she said. The neighbors smiled. Ah, he is a herbivore. They were pleased with themselves. They shrugged their shoulders and exchanged significant looks. Nicolette had seen that shrug many times before. It said, what kind of a man is this? Can he really be called a man at all if he doesn't eat meat? Larry sprawled in his chair, oblivious. Madame Bonfoy had set out an array of little savoury treats to accompany their drinks. Larry had necessarily refused the bits of crackling, the cocktail sausages, the bacon-flavoured mini-biscuits, but had accepted a second whisky with alacrity. Now he's full of edgy bonhomie, bored, wanting to be off home, not listening to anything anyone said because he couldn't understand it, but nonetheless instructing Nicolette to translate for him as soon as he had something to say. She gave him a rapidly whispered version of the conversation so far. Larry interrupted her. Hang on, old girl. Let me say something for once. Just tell them that being a vegetarian is brilliant for your sex life, right? He punched the air with his empty glass. Nicolette laughed shrilly. She translated what he'd said. The Bonfois roared with delight and toasted their new English neighbours afresh. Monsieur Bonfoir slapped Larry on the back and told Nicolette how lucky she was. <laughs> so then um, they make friends with the Bonfois but it's mainly Nicolette who goes round because she speaks better French. Madame Bonfois gave Nicolette a couple of trout from the lake still twitching and thrashing in their plastic bag. A pot of goose fat and some duck's blood for making boudin. She let Nicolette watch the pig being slung up by the hind legs from the forklift truck to be butchered and showed her how you scoured off the bristles with a blowtorch. She showed her how to kill and gut poultry and demonstrated various methods of skinning rabbits once you'd broken their necks. One way was to gouge out the eyes, take a knife to the sockets, and peel the skin off from there. In a few minutes, the fluffy white fur was tugged away and the naked head and body were filmed with rapidly seeping red. Sometimes on frosty winter mornings, Nicolette heard the hunt go by, the yapping of the excited dogs as they poured across the rigid silver of the bare furrowed fields, the exultant repeated call of the hunters' horns. Wrapping herself in her quilted jacket, she would hurry to the open door and strain her eyes against the sparkling light for a view of the escaping prey. The hunters wore olive green coats and sturdy boots. They waved to her from where they stood in the lane, gossiping, guns crooked over their arms. Monsieur Bonfoy would bring home his share of the dead beast and Nicolette would watch his wife cut it up and parcel it for the freezer. Boars had to be culled, Madame Bonfoy instructed her, because they savaged the crops and spoilt everything. They had to be put down. Larry was found murdered one afternoon in January. His throat expertly slit from ear to ear. The gendarmes asked Nicolette whether her husband had had any enemies, and she replied that as a vegetarian, he had certainly found it difficult to fit in.
1: Thank <laughs> you. Thank you very much, that was fantastic. That was fantastic. Mm. You mentioned um, earlier, that, uh, when you introducing the book, the stories of sex and love, but also you're talking about food. And one of the things that came across to me in so many of the stories is the, is the, the, the senses, the sensory appreciation of, of life, over and above, any, in any novel, I suppose, one, one picks up images, but here it's very overt in, in your writing, I think.
2: Yes, I think because it's difficult to write about sex and love, because the languages available to us are Well, they're not good enough for me. Um, I think the the language of sentimentality, which we're encouraged to use for talking about love, is a language of lying very often. Um, The language of pornography is another kind of lying, because there's not any emotion allowed in it or anyone's history. So it's very much kind of you know, his mighty male member, and she feels these crashing waves, (coughs) and then wham. Um, So it's cliches as well. I think also because I can write with facility and perhaps too quickly, I found that to slow myself down and to write better, to actually regroom a passage and redraft it and redraft it, I found that if I tried to get to the sensual truth of what people were doing or feeling, um, it felt like a better story and I think I think it 's part of my <laughs> my rage against the culture we live in, which is you know is so materialistic and everything 's judged by its monetary value and I think our sensuality is a form of knowledge. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful uh, gift we have as human beings, and I want to celebrate it. And then I think, being French, I was brought up to to cook and eat. I mean, not not you know rich or posh food, but just proper proper food. So sensuality was there for me from from childhood. It's also
1: uh, the title story, mud, and others feature mud, and they're wonderful descriptions of. Uh, one character in particular walking through London with just some sandals squelching through mud And the opening story so again walking through mud can you talk about that those feelings that you're mm. getting into the stories
2: well it was my dear editor Lenny Goodings who pointed out that all the stories have mud in them and so that <laughs> <laughs> the title story mud should be the titles of the volume um, I suppose I rather love mud um, because when you actually are going around London wearing flip-flops and it's raining, and it sometimes rains, I believe, in Edinburgh. I mean, I'm not sure about this, but I believe it does. And you're barefoot. You get these little curds of mud in between your toes, and you're being sort of gently tickled in your feet as you walk around, and it's very, very pleasurable. So it's, um, that, that's a form of sexual bliss. Also, having been raised Catholic, you know, I'm, I was taught from dust we come and to dust we shall return, if you turn that into mud then you start to feel your feet on, on the planet and to, to want to celebrate that and mud, it just cropped up in these stories, it seems to stand for, um, sensual delight, food, something <laughs> squishy and squidgy that isn't yet finished and maybe that's what I think about art. When you're writing or painting or making a sculpture or whatever work you're doing, cooking, gardening, raising children, there's something really sensual about taking the image of mud and saying, I can squelch it, I can change it, something isn't fixed. And I think that suits me um, as a way of making, that you can go on squidging. (laughs)
1: Um, Something else that struck me, and um, I may may have got it wrong, but um, is that the, the sensory appreciation of mud, of food and so on, is stirring memories in some of the characters. It's often childhood memories Mm. or formative experiences, it seems to me. Would that be true? Yes,
2: Yes, I suppose it goes back for me to being a child in my grandparents' garden, watching my English granddad plant his sweet peas and have a compost heap. And then I had a French family as well. And um, I can remember sitting at the back of their garden making mud pies at a very, very young age. And I can remember something really terrible, that I might as well tell you what it is. It was actually pooing in the garden as a very, very small child and experiencing this cosmic bliss. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, my brother said to me, it's okay, um, Zen Buddhists are really into that, and it's, it's, really, it's really cool. You can talk about these bodily functions and, you know, the great Buddhist saints would understand you. I thought, phew, thank heavens for that. <laughs>
1: and and also it struck me sort of it's i'm thinking for example the story where the woman goes to the hotel in venice yes in, mm. the, uh, in venice where, where these expi- the physical sensations seem to me to be tapping into the unconscious yeah. a, a bit as well it strikes me in that story in particular but also also yeah. in others
2: well i think i mean it's wonderful to be here on the platform with helen simpson who's a writer i greatly admire and i think we're both trying to get at what looks like the known world but try and sort of dig a bit into it and get a bit more of the unknown coming up I think Helen does that brilliantly and I think what I call that unknown world is the unconscious and I do see it as underneath and it is a bit like a big muddy bed full of lovely seeds of course that will sprout my image of the uh, imagination is a compost heap you chuck all this stuff onto it and then two years later wow something comes out you didn't know was there So the unconscious is a way of talking about the world we know and the world we don't know. And I suppose I'm always more interested in writing about the world I don't know, because it means I'm not bored apart from anything else. If I just wrote about what I know, it might be quite a groovy kind of journalism, and that's wonderful, journalists do it brilliantly, but I don't think it's the job of the fiction writer. Um, So I want to look at my character's fears and my character's desires and the life they haven't yet lived or let themselves live. And I think the unconscious is a good shorthand for that. And then mud becomes the image. You know, do we dare to go and put our feet into the mud? Yeah. Do we dare to pick mud up and actually hold it in our hands? What could we make with it?
1: Would you agree with that, Helen?
2: Yes. but I, Does this work? No, it's not yeah. working. Yes, <laughs> is that you're working? OK.
3: I'm OK. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what you said about um, stories, well, you're not bored when you're writing them. That's That's partly why I write them, because they're very wasteful in terms of money and time to write. Um, But you're never bored. You've got the luxury of trying a new form, taking a different approach. You don't have to take the same line all the time. Mm. That's what I like. Yes. Come at it from different angles. Yes. Mm. Would you like to read? All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm into the reading glasses years, and it's mm, (laughs) always leaving them places. Um, I'm going to read a story called Diary of an Interesting Year. Um, In this collection, I've got 15 stories, and five of them were concerned with climate change um, I'm not at all interested in polemic or writing, and these aren't written as polemic. It's—I think your only duty as a writer is to write interestingly, but well about what stimulates your imagination. And climate change did because it seemed—I heard someone say it's impossible to write about. It's very difficult because it's morally freighted and it's full of statistics and difficult scientific data. And hard to know how to dramatise without seeming to moralise, or oh, you know, get people looking at their watches and thinking, right, skip that, because it's it's a sort of um, sort of depressing and also a boring subject in a way. Unless you're a physicist, you have to try very. Hard. Well, I, in my case, I had to try hard to when I started reading the science. Um, so I tried five, but I want, it was a challenge. I wanted to see if I could find five different ways into the subject. And this is one of them. This was, uh, I thought, dystopia. So it's set in the year 2040. And, well, you'll, you'll see. Diary of an interesting year. 12th of February, 2040. My 30th birthday. G gave me this little spiral-back notebook and a biro. It's a good present, hardly any rust on the spiral, and no water damage to the paper. I'm going to start a diary. I'll keep my handwriting tiny to make the paper go further. 15th of February, 2040. Gee, is really getting me down. He's in his element. They should carve it on his tombstone. I was right. 23rd of February, 2040. Glad we don't live in London. The Hatchwells have got cousins staying with them. they trekked up from Peckham three days. Went round this afternoon and they were saying the thing that finally drove them out was the sewage system. When the drains packed up, it overflowed everywhere. They said the smell was unbelievable. The pavements are swimming in it. And of course, the hospitals are down, so there's nothing to be done about the cholera. Didn't get too close to them in case they were carrying it. They lost their two sons like that last year. You see, G said to me on the way home, capitalism cared more about its children as accessories and demonstrations of earning power than for their future. Oh, shut up, I said. 2nd of March, 2040. Can't sleep. I'm writing this instead of staring at the ceiling. There's a mosquito in the room. I can hear it whining close to my ear. Very humid, air like filthy soup. Plus, we're supposed to wear our face mask in bed, too. But I was running with sweat, so I ripped mine off just now. Got up and looked at myself in the mirror on the landing. Ribs like a fence, hair and greasy rat's tails. Yesterday, the rats in the kitchen were busy gnawing away at the bread bin. They didn't even look up when I came in. 6th of March, 2040. Another quarrel with G. OK, yes, he was right, but why crow about it? That's what you get when you marry your tutor from uni. Wall-to-wall pontificating from an older man. I saw it coming. Any fool could see it coming, especially after the big melt, he brags. Thresholds crossed, cascade effect. Hopelessly optimistic to assume we had till 2060. Blah-dee-blah-dee-blah. The plutonomy is lemming, democracy's massive own goal. No wonder we haven't got any friends. He cheered when rationing came in. He's the one that volunteered first as car-share warden for our road. One piddling little Peugeot for the entire road. Gets a real kick out of camaraderie round the standpipe. I'll swap my big tin of chickpeas for your little tin of sardines. No, no, my sardines are protein. Chickpeas are protein too, plus they fill you up more. Anyway, I thought you still had some tuna. No, I swapped that with Astrid Huggins for a tin of tomato soup. Really sick of bartering, but hard to know how to earn money since the internet went down. Also, money's no use unless you've got shed loads of it, as I said to him in bed last night. The top layer hanging on inside their plastic bubbles of filtered air, while the rest of us shuffle about with goiters and tumours and bits of old sheep tied over our mouths. Plus, we're soaking wet the whole time. We've given up on umbrellas, we just go around permanently drenched. I only stopped ranting when I heard a snore and clocked he was asleep. 8th of April, 2040. Boring morning, washing out rags. No wood for hot water, so had to use ashes and lye again. Hands very sore, even though I put plastic bags over them. Did the face masks first, then the rags from my period. It took forever. At least I haven't got to do nappies like Lexi or Esme. That would send me right over the edge. 27th of April, 2040, just back from Myers. Seven months. She's very frightened. I don't blame her. She tried to make me promise I'd take care of the baby if anything happens to her. I havered, mostly at the thought of coming between her and that throwback Martin. She got a new black eye, I didn't ask. I suppose there's no harm in promising if it makes her feel better. After all, it wouldn't exactly be taking on a responsibility. I give a new baby three months max in these conditions. Diarrhea, basically. 14th of May, 2040. Can't sleep. Bites, itching, trying not to scratch. Heavy thumps and squeaks just above in the ceiling. Think of something nice. Soap and hot water. Fresh air. Condoms. Sick of being permanently on knife edge, re pregnancy. Start again. Wandering round a supermarket. Warm, gorgeously lit. Corridors of open fridges full of tiger prawns and fillet steak. Gliding off down the fast lane in a sports car, stopping to fill up with 30 litres of petrol. Online, booking tickets for the mousetrap, click. Ordering a crate of wine, click. A holiday home, click. A pair of patent leather boots, click. A gap year, click. I go to iTunes and download The Marriage of Figaro. Then I chat face to face in real time with G's parents in Sydney. No, don't think about what happened to them. Horrible. Go to sleep. 21st of May, 2040, another row with G. He blew my second candle out. He said one was enough. It wasn't, though. I couldn't see to read anymore. He drives me mad. It's like living with a policeman. It always was, even before the collapse. The earth has enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed, was his favourite. Nobody likes being labelled greedy. I called him Killjoy, and he didn't like that. Every one of us takes about 25,000 breaths a day, he told me. Each breath removes oxygen from the atmosphere and replaces it with carbon dioxide. Well, pardon me for breathing. <laughs> what was I supposed to do, turn into a tree? 6th of June, 2040. Went round to the Lumley's for the news last night. Whole road there squashed into front rooms, straining to listen to radio. Batteries very low. No new ones in the last government delivery. Big news, though. Compulsory billeting Imminent. The shorthouses were up in arms. Kai shouting and red in the face, Lexi in tears. You work all your life, etc, etc. What planet is he on? None of us too keen, but nothing to be done about it. When we got back, G checked our stash of tins under the bedroom floorboards. A big rat shot out and I screamed my head off. G held me till I stopped crying, then we had sex. Woke in the night and prayed not to be pregnant, though God knows who I was praying to. 12th of June, 2040. Visited Maya this afternoon. She was in bed. Her legs have swollen up like balloons. On at me again to promise about the baby, and this time I said yes. She said Astrid Huggins was going to help her when it started. Astrid was a nurse once, apparently. Not really the hands-on sort, but better than nothing. Nobody else in the road will have a clue what to do now we can't Google it. All I remember from old films is you're supposed to boil a kettle, I said. We started to laugh, we got a bit hysterical. Knuckle Dragon Martin put his head round the door and growled at us to shut it. First of July, 2040. First billet arrived today by army truck. We've got a Spanish group of eight, including one old lady, her daughter, and twin toddler grandsons, all pretty feral, plus four unsmiling men of fighting age. A bit much since we only have two bedrooms. G and I tried to show them round, but they ignored us. The grandmother bagged our bedroom straight off. We're under the kitchen table tonight. (laughs) I might try to sleep on top of it because of the rats. (laughs) We couldn't think of anything to say. The only Spanish we could remember was muchas gracias. And as G said, we're certainly not saying that. (laughs) 2nd of July, 2040. Fell off the table in my sleep. Bashed my elbow, covered in bruises. 3rd of July, 2040. G depressed. The four Spaniards are bigger than him, and he's worried that the biggest one, Miguel, has his eye on me. With reason, I have to say. Mm. 4th of July, 2040, G depressed. The grandmother found our tins under the floorboard and all but danced a flamenco. Mm. Miguel punched G when he tried to reclaim a tin of sardines, and since then his nose won't stop bleeding. 6th of July, 2040, last night under the table, G came up with a plan. He thinks we should head north. Now this lot are in the flat and a new group from Tehran promised next week. We might as well cut and run. Scotland's heaving. Everyone else has already had the same idea. So he thinks we should get on one of the ferries to Stavanger, then aim for Russia. I don't know, I said. Where would we stay? I've got the pop-up tent packed in a rucksack behind the shed, he said, plus our sleeping bags and my wind-up radio. Camping in the mud, I said. Look on the bright side, he said. We have a huge mortgage and we're just going to walk away from it. Oh, shut up, I said. (laughs) 17th of July, 2040. Maya died yesterday. It was horrible. The baby got stuck two weeks ago. It died inside her. Astrid Huggins was useless. She didn't have a clue. Martin started waving his Swiss army knife around on the second day and yelling about a caesarean. He had to be dragged off her. He's rounded ours now, drinking the last of our precious brandy with the Spaniards. That's it. We've got to go. Now, says G, yes. 1st of August, 2040, somewhere in Shropshire, or possibly Cheshire, we're staying off the beaten track. Heavy rain, this notebook's pages have gone all wavy. At least Biro doesn't run. I'm lying inside the tent now, G is out foraging. We got away in the middle of the night. G slung our two rucksacks across the bike. We took turns to wheel it. Then on the fourth morning, we woke up and looked outside the tent flap, and it was gone, even though we covered it with leaves the night before. Could be worse, said G. We could have had our throats cut while we slept. Oh, shut up, I said. <laughs> 3rd of August, 2040. Rivers and streams all toxic, fertilisers, typhoid, etc. So we're following G's DIY system. Dip billy can into stream or river. Add three drops of bleach. Boil up on camping stove with t shirt stretched over billy can. Only moisture squeezed from the T-shirt is safe to drink, nothing else. You're joking, I said, when G first showed me how to do this. But no. 9th of August, 2040, radio news in muddy sleeping bags. Skeleton government obviously struggling. They keep playing the Enigma Variations. Last night, they announced the end of fuel for civilian use and the compulsory disabling of all remaining civilian cars. As from now, we must all stay at home, they said, and not travel without permission. There's talk of martial law. We're going cross-country as much as possible, less chance of being arrested or mugged, trying to cover 10 miles a day, but the weather slows us down. Torrential rain, often horizontal and gusting winds. 16th of August, 2040, rare, dry afternoon, black lace clouds over yellow sky. Brown grass, frosty grey mould, fungal frills. Dead trees come crashing down without warning. One nearly got us today. It made us jump. Gee was hoping we'd find stuff growing in the fields, but all the farmland around here is surrounded by razor wire and armed guards. He says he knows how to grow vegetables from his allotment days. But so what? They take too long. We're hungry now. We can't wait till March for some old carrots to get ripe. 22nd of August, 2040, G broke a front crown cracking a beech nut. There's a black hole and he whistles when he talks. Damsons, blackberries, young green nettles for soup, he said at the start of all this, smacking his lips. He's not so keen now. No damsons or blackberries, of course. Only chickweed and ivy. He's just caught a lame squirrel, so I suppose I'll have to do something with it. No creatures left except squirrels, rats and pigeons, unless you count the insects. The news says they're full of protein. You're meant to grind them into a paste. But so far, we haven't been able to face that. 24th of August, 2040. We met a pig this morning. It was a bit thin for a pig, and it didn't look well. G said, quick, we've got to kill it. Why, I said, how? With a knife, he said, bacon, sausages. I pointed out that even if we managed to stab it to death with our old kitchen knife, which looked unlikely... We wouldn't be able to just open it up and find bacon and sausages inside. (laughs) Milk then, said G wildly. It's a mammal, isn't it? Meanwhile, the pig walked off. (laughs) 25th of August, 2040. Ravenous. We've both got streaming colds. Jumping with fleas, itching like crazy. Weeping sores on hands and faces. Unfortunate side effects from cloud seeding, the news says. What with all this and his toothache, back molar, swollen jaw and the malaria, G is in a bad way. 27th of August, 2040, found a dead hedgehog. Tried to peel off its spines and barbecue it over the last briquette. Disgusting, both sick as dogs. Why did I used to moan about the barter system? Foraging is much, much worse. 29th of August, 2040, dreamt of Maya and the Swiss army knife and woke up crying. G held me in his shaky arms and talked about Russia how it's the new land of milk and honey since the big melt. Some really good farming opportunities opening up in Siberia, he said through chattering teeth. We're like in the Three Sisters, I said, if only we could get to Moscow. Do you remember that production at the National? We walked by the river afterwards. We stood and listened to Big Ben shine midnight. Hugged each other and carried on like this until sleep came. 31st of August, 2040, G woke up crying. I held him and hushed him and asked what was the matter. I wish I had a gun, he said. 15th of September, 2040. Can't believe this notebook book was still at the bottom of the rucksack and the biro. Murderer wasn't interested in them. He's turned everything else inside out, including me. Gee, didn't have a gun. This one has a gun. 19th of September, 2040, M speaks another language. Norwegian, Dutch, Croatian, we can't talk, so he hits me instead. He smells like an abandoned fridge, his breath stinks of rot. What he does to me is horrible. I don't want to think about it, I won't think about it. There's a tent and cooking stuff on the ground, but half the time we're up a tree with the gun. There's a big plank platform and a tarpaulin rope to the branches above. At night he pulls the rope ladder up after us. It's quite high, you can see for miles. He uses the platform for storing stuff he brings back from his mugging expeditions. I'm surrounded by tins of baked beans. 3rd of October, 2040. M can't seem to get through the day without at least two blowjobs. I'm always sick afterwards, sometimes during. 8th of October, 2040. M beat me up yesterday. I tried to escape. I shan't do that again. He's too fast. 14th of October, 2040. If we run out of beans, I think he might kill me for food. There were warnings about it on the news a while back. This one wouldn't think twice. I'm just meat on legs to him. He bit me all over last night, hard. I'm covered in bite marks. I was literally licking my wounds afterwards when I remembered how nice the taste of blood is, how I miss it. Strength. Calves liver for iron. How I haven't had a period for ages. When that thought popped out, I missed a beat. Then my blood ran cold. 15th of October, 2040. Wasn't it juniper berries they used to use? As in gin? Even if it was, I wouldn't know what they looked like. I only remember mint and basil. I can't be pregnant. I won't be pregnant. 17th of October, 2040. Very sick after drinking rank juice off random stewed herbs. Nothing else, though, worse luck. 20th of October, 2040, can't sleep. Dreamed of G, I was moving against him. It started to go up a little way so I thought he wasn't really dead. Dreadful waking to find M there instead. 23rd of October, 2040, can't sleep. Very bruised and scratched after today. They used to throw themselves downstairs to get rid of it. The trouble is the gravel pit just wasn't deep enough, plus the bramble bushes kept breaking my fall. There was some sort of body down there too, some seething with white vermin. Maybe it was a goat or a pig or something, but I don't think it was. I keep thinking it might have been G. 31st of October, 2040. This baby will be the death of me. Would, let's make that a conditional. Would, not will. 7th of November, 2040. It's all over. I'm still here. Too tired to... 8th of November, 2040. Slept for hours. Stronger. I've got all the food and drink and the gum. There's still some shouting from down there, but it's weaker now. I think he's almost finished. 9th of November, 2040. Slept for hours. Fever gone. Baked beans for breakfast. More groans started up just now. Never mind. I can wait. 10th of November, 2040, it's over. I got stuck into his bottle of vodka. It was the demon drink that saved me. He was out mugging, left me up the tree as usual. I drank just enough to raise my courage. Nothing else had worked, so I thought I'd get him to beat me up. When he came back and saw me waving the bottle, he was beside himself. I pretended to be drunker than I was, and I lay down on the wooden platform with my arms round my head while he got the boot in. It worked. It worked. Not right away, but that night. Meanwhile, M decided he fancied a drink himself, and very soon he'd polish off the rest of it, more than three quarters of a bottle. He was singing and sobbing and carrying on out of his tree with alcohol. And then, when he was standing, pissing off the side of the platform, I crept along and gave him a gigantic shove, and he really was out of his tree. Crash. 13th of November, 2040. I've wrapped your remains in my good blue shirt. Sorry I couldn't let you stay on board, but there's no future now for any baby above ground. I'm the end of the line. This is the last page of my 30th birthday present. When I've finished it, I'll wrap the notebook up in six plastic bags, sealing each one with duct tape against the rain. Then I'll bury it in a hole on top of the blue shirt. I don't know why, as I'm not mad enough to think anybody will ever read it, After that, I'm going to buckle on this rucksack of provisions and head north with my gun. Wish me luck. Last line. Good luck, good luck, good luck, good luck, good luck.
1: Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. you. Could I just you, you mentioned at the beginning that you were reading some scientific journals and, and so on, and mm. I mean, notwithstanding, this is obviously an important issue of our time. What was it in particular that uh, that you wanted to write about? Why did you want to write about this?
3: Um, what with these climate, these climate things? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was partly I went to some party and I heard someone from the BBC talking about getting creatives in. Oh. And how these parties of creatives—they had—they tried to get them to they interest them in this issue of climate change, and how how disappointing the results have been, and how people either weren't interested, or and I, it just I thought, yes, that's—it would be really difficult to do that. Yeah. And so I've, I like a challenge, I suppose. And I mean, it, it was I've, to make it interesting, or to imagine. But also the hostility, the hostility you're going to get for the subject matter. I know it myself, you know when there's a piece in the paper and it's a long piece, and it's very important, I think, <sighs> right, shall I put five minutes aside or um, but it is well, and also um I love Dryden as a poet, and he was very good at describing um changes of state to state melting to freezing, um, where whole systems and worlds seem to it's sort of entropic um, states of being and I wanted some of that. Yeah.
1: There are five stories as you say mm-hmm. looking at this subject. Could you just give us some idea of the points of view of some of the others? You said you've tried to come at it from five different
3: angles. Um, yes, another one's a sales pitch. Can you, can you hear? Is it right? Yeah. Um, and that was a sort of meant to be comedy. Um, that was very short. She's actually a carbon coach, and she, yeah. But that's almost not satire. People are doing that now, um, yeah. treating it as a diet, and it, anyway. Uh, then there was a, a love story, a, an apocalyptic love story, that was long, um, and a, a, the title story. That's that's satirical, yeah. Dark black comedy, really. Yes, it's got a, a death on an aeroplane and. Everyone getting very angry about the delay
4: because
3: <laughs> it's surprising how often um, deaths happen on airplanes, particularly in first class and it's it's to do with um, you know the, an older population i think <laughs> got, it doesn't really matter about delays either. they're always the merry ones at airports they're, they're sitting having rounds and um and apparently you know they have to allow for it I think they stow bodies now either. The baggage bit, but but generally it's generally it's first class, and first class passengers can get very shirty. Someone comes up, from, maybe from economy sometimes, and <laughs> takes up three seats, and they're being pushed over. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, well, I, I suppose yes. Uh, some of the, the it's it's handy if you're doing climate change to have flying is a good symbol. It's it's um. It's probably no worse than anything else, but it, uh, th- th- in terms of. Carbon release, but, but, but it's, it's one of those things, it's actually just pure fun. We don't need to fly, really. I mean, we, we pretend we do, but it's mostly for travel, it's fun. It, it, we need heat and we need light and we need, you know, for survival, but not flying. And we can make all sorts of Defences for it, and, and you know, but and love miles Oh, I had another one called Love Miles. I originally called it. You know, so I've got to travel, for, but but it's it's shifting around the planet. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's why I did aeroplanes. We mm. both like to take some questions. Yes.
1: yes. Yeah. yeah. Very happy to take some questions. Um, we have a colleague with a radio mic. It's helpful if you let them come to you, so that everybody else can hear the question. Please go ahead.
0: Hi, uh, this is for either really, but um, Helen Simpson, you've. Written these stories that have received uh, deservedly a lot of attention. Um, writing about climate change uh, in fiction, generally speaking, has been. Did you say
3: no? Sorry? You said they've. I heard full of pretension, but it's not. Was it? They've produced a lot of attention. No, I'm a I bit said, deaf. I'm a bit deaf, and I keep. Well, I, I speak very <laughs> I fast, so between <laughs> us, we're lost. Sorry. The only thing I was going to say was. Right.
0: That, um, Writing about climate change has usually been the preserve until recently of speculative fiction or science fiction writers, and increasingly, as people in Russia or Pakistan could tell you, it's becoming a daily reality. What interests me about the stories that you've written, first of all, is that they're not overtly polemical pieces, because that's not really very um, uh, propitious for good fiction, arguably. But secondly, you've tried to write about them from all different kinds of angles. Can you think of any other writers working now who you think have successfully started to try to write about something which is no longer purely speculative, but increasingly becoming a reality?
3: Well, this particular subject, um, I mean, have you read Solar, Ian McEwan's book? Yes. He, he, takes, he takes the metaphor of basically someone who just, who's getting fatter and fatter, but can't stop, and uh, which is consumption, the whole habit of consumption. and. And the trouble being that that's capitalism, as far as I can see. You, you are you, you're meant to grow. You're meant to spend and eat and consume more year on year. Um, so so there was that. I don't I, I don't think I've seen it done in stories so much, but there was um, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, of course. That was the dystopia. There's always been dystopian fiction, and that's that's always been good fun. That was my little The Road, I think. Yeah. And um, and actually the appeal of look at the, the road was it was partly the DIY aspect and the road had no women in it I mean she'd been bumped off early on the, the wife she was out of it and then and it was just the father and his boy and there's a lot of then we got the spare tire out and we got the spanner out and I, I don't know a lot of fire you know lighting fires with bits and pieces and so I thought I'd put some DIY in as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> Michelle do you think of
2: anything else well, I was thinking Margaret Atwood, really, um, yes. the last couple of novels. Um, maybe of course, it's I more read, I haven't read yeah. The Year of the Flood. Have you read that yet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's doing a dystopia, perhaps also in the in the tradition of someone like Doris Lessing. I, I think you don't have to call it science fiction anymore. I mean, there's, a, I think, a mm. tradition of dystopic novels that go back to the 19th century. And I think women have been very interested in that form because women haven't seen ourselves as the beneficiaries of of culture usually you know we're often feeling marginalised or we're feeling a bit done over or not appreciated so I think women love that dystopic form and I think it may release even a kind of sadistic delight sometimes I mean Mm. what I loved about that story Helen was it was very serious but it was using comedy I mean it was extremely funny in a very kind of wonderfully vicious way I thought
3: (laughs) (laughs) but the trouble is you've got I mean unless you're going to it's the real trouble with these, it was try it's not moralizing i mean i don't know about climate i don't I'm, I'm just a lay person and i'm not very good at science and what what point you know who wants to know my views on it anyway i'm just like any other newspaper reader but i can do certain i, I don't know it's a, but the, the, the main thing was to avoid yeah well she she's fed up of being moralized at the one in there yeah. so another question
1: Over there, and then the gentlemen, near the front.
2: Um, hi, this, well, it's really for both of you, but it was Michelle who was talking about um, the mud and the squishiness and art as mud and you know, being able to, to mold it and shape it and change it. I just wondered, at what point do you get to the stage where you think this is it with a piece of writing mm. and I've, I've really got to stop squishing it now. Mm. <laughs> mm. You know, what is, what is the sign for you or don't you ever think it's finished? Yeah. Well, I know when I was a kid and making my mud pies, the, the deadline was mum or dad saying, tea's ready. Um, so you might bake them, um, but tea's ready, that was more interesting. I think as a grown up, living in a professional world, there are deadlines. And luckily, having a publisher who's an editor means she wants your work, or he wants your work, and you work your absolute best, but you you call it finished when you give it in, and then you rewrite it, because there's always more work to do, and maybe a publication date approaches. I can look at, well, I can't actually bear to look at novels I wrote as a young woman, because I think, oh, God, you know, oh, they're so awful, they're so bad, and I would want to rewrite them. So I think I always want to make things better Maybe it's quite good to say all art is, in a sense, unfinished, incomplete, because that actually, I'm just thinking, gives a space for the audience, for us. Um, If you look at great sculptures or great paintings, there will be bits in it that are very suggestive, not finished, not exact, not with black lines. And I think that really allows the human onlooker to complete the picture, to complete the sculpture. So I've just thought you can make a lovely argument for... I don't know when something's finished, but it's good to know it isn't finished. Because then uh, someone else takes over and, you know, work of art doesn't exist until it's been read or looked at or stroked or whatever. So maybe being incomplete is, uh, is lovely and I don't have to fret about it. Helen, <laughs> well,
3: I think I ought to make more mud pies actually. I'm, I'm, I'm much too slow and I spend too long. Um, and I, I'm more of the coral reef style of writing. There's a little bit added each, you know, sort of. Mm. um, But stories seem to me the form. um, In fact, I might try mud pies if I try a novel. It just can't Mm. carry on like this. Um, (laughs) The the stories, um, people use the word condensed, and that's true. V.S. Pritchett used to talk about uh, boiling down 100 pages to 30. Which again it suggests he was mud pie making then editing and editing. I don't seem to do that I'm, no, i no but the the condensed feeling certainly, but it's, that's not quite it, I was thinking the other day it's actually also what I'm after now is amplification i think it's it, uh I was reminded of reading a bit of a piece of Blake on the underground you know that to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower hmm. um and that taken away from hymns and stuff—it's it, it, it's am- the business of amplification, and what's suggestive, what, how how powerful you can make that suggestion, how mm. how yeah, how much power you can get for how li- few words is mm. that? Uh. Mm. A gentleman near the front, got a question?
4: Perhaps. Um, a very general question that I could uh, frame in terms of the stories that you've read. You just mentioned, Helen, this aspect of of perhaps tending divorce amplification. In the story that you've read, the amplification comes as much as what is happening in between the diary entries as the diary entries themselves. That is the condensed part of a very larger story. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, when I read it, I didn't laugh once. I have to say, I, I thought it was quite mordant that the humor was there almost to sort of keep herself alive and sane. Um, but I did wonder how much um, do you come to these stories and the focus of them from a large picture or do you see the larger picture through writing the focused telescopic area that you're looking at um, you know, have we seen the photograph have we seen the negative and just how much do we do and for example Michelle you know, looking at their life you go through an aspect of it then the retired you know, just sometimes how do you see that, that larger canvas and then decide to um, uh, look at part of it? Or, looking at a part of it, do you then see the larger canvas? I know it's a bit general, but uh, perhaps by reference to those two stories?
3: Well, um, the short story is sometimes criticised for being short, small, slight. It's not. It's, but it's not panoramic. Um, I, I see it sometimes as, in camera work, it's zoom lens. Um, and when people say it's a miniature, it's not ne- it's not a miniature. Mm-hmm. It's it's a close-up. And uh, the other day I was at an exhibition of the Glasgow Boys, uh, the in Glasgow, uh, in the Hunterian, I think. And um, was it there? Yeah. I, um, but I saw a portrait of a, a famous portrait, apparently, of someone called Old Woolley, oh. and I can't remember the artist, but someone the here gosh. will. Guthrie. It was Guthrie, yes. And. Um, just looking at this portrait, I thought I I know I I just learned so much about where he came from. I knew the time he was living in somehow, and that's I suppose just without thinking about it. That's what you trust, that something which you've paid enough close attention to, if it's truthful enough, then it will do what that portrait did and, and amplify. And, and when you read Chekhov, the same thing happens. And it's not always you're taking a particularly telling anecdote. You just have to. It, it's the, the. I suppose the. It's the. It's the sensitivity. Is, comes in the. Working out what suggestions are useful and which ones to discard. And it, it's just a way of feeling. Your, yeah.
2: And I think it's partly also trusting in language, and trusting in image. Um, Because there's a particular kind of metaphor. I never remember, it's got a Greek name, whether it's metonymy or synecdoche. I learned it at school, but I can never remember what it is. Anyway, it's a little can stand for a lot. Like the crown for the queen, that's metonymy. Mm. Yeah, Mm. so um, I remember my grandfather telling us tales of the First World War, and they all centered on this soup pot in which he boiled, it was a billy can of soup every night in the First World War trenches. And the billy can still existed. And that billy can stood for the world of the First World War, men in the trenches, trying to nurture themselves, trying to feed themselves. Um, it works. And I think when you write short stories, you're trusting in that. And the amplification in your own mind and in the mind of your reader, through language, through what language does. And that soup pot, um, that would also be in good theater.
3: Yes. I mean, I think playwrights have more in common with short story writers very often mm. than, than, than certainly with mm. novelists, yeah. Mm.
1: Thank you both very much. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Helen and Michelle will be signing copies of their books over in the main bookshop on the right as we leave uh, this venue. Um, Given the tight turnaround in these venues, we'd be very grateful if you let us sort of escape first so that we can (laughs) get across to the bookshop uh, before so that people can get ready for the next event. But would you join me in thanking Helen Simpson and Michelle Roberts?
2: Well done, that is is Welcome!
0: Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.